Good morning, church. Happy 4th of July. So glad that you have come to worship God here together. And today we're going to uh, talk about something that uh, is near and dear to my heart. We're going to talk about making a declaration of dependence. And it sounds interesting because we think about our declaration of independence when we think about July 4th. And that's a good thing. I'm very proud to be an American and I'm very glad that we are able to live in a land where we are free from oppression and where uh, we have just been able to enjoy publicly worshiping and gathering together and that there is just the sacrifice of so many who have gone before us to make that possible and we are grateful for that and we should celebrate that i mean i don't know about you but i'm gonna have a hot dog and some freedom fries today um <clears throat> so because that's what we should be doing america um but <clears throat> as we celebrate our independence i began to think about that idea because independence isn't always a good thing in every circumstance because independence has this idea and this mentality of I've got this. And when challenges come, when difficulties come, people can think, oh, I can handle this on my own because I'm strong. And people who are independent like to display their strength, like to display their intellect and how sharp they are and how sufficient they are in and of themselves. But the gospel is so counter to that message because the gospel of Jesus Christ requires the opposite. The gospel of Jesus Christ requires us to acknowledge our need. The gospel of Jesus Christ requires us to acknowledge our dependence. So it requires us to humble ourselves and to actually say, God, I don't got this. God, I can't fix this. Because the thing that Jesus fixed, the good news of the gospel, is that he fixed the sin problem that you and I have that we couldn't fix on our own. That Jesus took the penalty that was due to you and to me, and rightly so, based on the fact that we've rebelled towards God and we have sinned. Scripture says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we all have the same sin problem and we all have the same opportunity to be able to be saved, to be reconciled, to be redeemed, to be forgiven, and to brought back into right standing in God's eyes. But we can't do it on our own. If we think we've got this and we can somehow fix ourselves, we're sorely mistaken because it truly was only by the blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect spotless lamb, the sacrifice for you and for me and for the whole world, can we truly be saved. Amen, church? And so I have to declare my need. I have to declare my dependence, not my strength when it comes to the gospel. But how can I be humbled regularly to recognize my need and to see clearly my need? Let's go over to Luke chapter 11, and we're going to talk about the answer to that question. Luke chapter 11 we're going to read verse 1 through 13, Luke 11 and verse 1. I hear a few pages turning. I feel the breeze. I'm enjoying it. <laughs> Love hearing the pages of Bibles turning in church and the sound of thumbs searching for Luke chapter 11. All those, you have to listen a little closer to hear that one. Luke chapter 11 verse 1 now jesus was praying in a certain place and when he finished one of his disciples said to him 
Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight, excuse me, and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence or his persistence, he will rise up and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? What a powerful passage of Scripture that starts off with a simple request. The disciples just want to learn how to pray. Lord, teach us how to pray. And then Jesus begins to teach them what we have called the Lord's Prayer. And that prayer is one that I believe it's perfectly fine to say the Lord's Prayer um, line for line. I think that's a great way to pray. But I also think that Jesus was teaching us more than just those particular words to pray. I think Jesus was showing us a pattern of prayer that will position our heart in such a way that it will help us to see our need for a Savior and help us to declare our need for Him. And I think that the way Jesus starts out is so beautiful that if we would take a lesson from the way Jesus starts out this prayer, I think it would temper and change the way that we approach God in our prayer lives. Start off your prayer life by talking about how holy and big and awesome God is. Our Father in heaven, you're addressing him as a father. So you're saying the father, the perfect father, knows better than I do. He knows what's going on. He knows the end from the beginning. Holy is his name. Hallowed be your name. And then declaring, Lord, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth in my life as it is in heaven. So before you even make any type of petition... You're tempering your heart and your expectations to say, God, I want whatever I desire to be in line with what you desire. I want what you want. Help me, Lord, to want what you want, because I believe you know better than I do, just as the father knows better than what the child knows what they truly need. The child thinks, oh, I can eat all the candy I want. That's good, right? And the father says, no, that's not good. And then the child says, well, that's not fair. I should be able to decide how much I want, but the father knows best. So that's the child, you and I, saying, Lord, you know better, you know best, and I'm going to trust your kingdom come, your will be done on earth in my life as it is in heaven because you're so holy, because you're so big, and you're worthy of my trust. That helps to position my heart and my mind for what I may pray. And then I wanna make sure that I'm not holding anything against anyone. I wanna make sure that there aren't any uh, unconfessed sin in my life as I approach God. Lord, if I'm holding anything uh, and and holding someone in my debt as if they owed me something, Lord, I, I wanna forgive them because you have so richly and graciously 
forgiven me. This is a tempering of our heart, and it helps us to recognize our need for a Savior. And then here we see that Jesus said, don't you think that God is so good, your Father is so good, that he's going to give you good gifts because you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. And he gives some extreme hyperbole here. And he says, how many of you, if your son says, hey, can I have a fish? You go, here's a scorpion or here's a serpent. Like, what a, like you, you wouldn't do that. And he says, you who are evil know how to give good, give, give good gifts to your children. How much more do you think that the Father's going to give you the Holy Spirit if you ask him? If you just say, Lord, I want you, I need you, I'm depending on you, and I'm trusting in you. And then he gives this interesting story in this teaching where he's teaching his disciples how to pray. Because remember, that's the context here. He's teaching the disciples how to pray. He begins to talk to them about this illustration of a neighbor, like who at midnight has an unexpected guest come over. And you're like, oh no, I wasn't expecting this person who's come on this really long journey. And so I couldn't go shopping beforehand to make sure I had stuff for them. I've got to have something for them. They're weary. They've just come from this long journey. I know I'll go to my neighbor's house at midnight and wake them up and ask them for some bread. That's perfectly logical, right? And so you're knock, 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 knock. And they answer the door. What, what on earth are you doing over here, Steve? I mean, my goodness, it's a it's midnight. What are you doing? He's like, I need some bread. <laughs> Seriously? Like, I just put the kids to bed. Like, we're asleep. What are, what are you doing? I, I, go, go home. And he doesn't stop. He keeps knocking. He keeps knocking. And what is Jesus illustrating to us? He's telling us there's this need for persistence in our lives because it's not just, God, will you do this? Or God, I'm going to trust you in this area of my life. And, oh, well, it didn't work out, so I guess I'll quit. No, he says to keep asking, keep trusting. Let your persistence be a sign of your faith that you're asking God to move and intervene on your behalf because you know he's the good father who's going to give good gifts. So you're saying, God, I'm trusting that you're able. God, I'm trusting that you're good. God, I know that you have what I need. Just like that neighbor, he knows that that person he's asking has what, they need, what he needs. I know you have what I need, and I'm trusting you for it, and I know you're good. And so I'm going to keep on asking because I know who you are. That's the type of neighbor that would keep asking, the type of neighbor that knows that the neighbor truly had what he needed and that he would do it. And so that's the confidence that we are to have in God as Jesus is, is spelling this here out to help us to declare our dependence and our need. But often this idea of the American dream bleeds over into the gospel and we use God to achieve our own personal types of happiness because we think God can help us achieve the American dream and that becomes our goal and we miss our need, our true need. We think our need becomes more money. We think our need becomes um, a more comfortable life. We think that our need becomes the things that we would call good, the things that we would call right, the things that we're pursuing and we're chasing after in our lives. And those are the things we think God can help us get. And if God can help us get those things, then sure, I'll serve God if he gives me what I want. And we miss this whole idea of him being the good father who really knows what we need. And so when we don't get what we want, when we want, how we want it, we get mad at God and we get upset with God. But here's the difference between us and God. Well, there's a lot of differences, but let's highlight this one in particular. God gets to define good on his own terms. Think about that. 
we say God is good. And often when we say that, we say God is good because God is doing things for me that are improving my experience here on earth and improving my life. And if that's as far as your definition goes of God being good, you don't really understand God's goodness. Because good is relative, right? To every one of us. I mean, I could say, hey, that was such a good movie. And you go, no, it wasn't. I didn't like that movie at all. There are people who were watching a basketball game last night that they don't think the outcome was very good. Those people happen to be from the state of Georgia. God bless them. Pray for them. Comfort them. Help them through this time. Pastor Barry. But God helped. Because the Milwaukee Bucks won and they're headed to the NBA Finals. And I, as a Bucks fan that's deeply invested in the team, would call that good. You see, when we use the word good, we are using that word in a way that we mean if it benefits me, right? But God doesn't use good that way. God uses the word good in a way that you and I don't. So therefore, there are things that happen in our lives that God would call good that we would go, uh-uh. And have you seen God take something that you would call not good and turn it around for your good and for his glory? Now, God didn't cause that calamity because John 10 and 10 is very clear. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. And Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and life abundantly, right? That's Jesus saying that. So the thief is the one who's causing this, but that's not the end for you. Just because you may be experiencing a tough time, just because maybe you got a bad doctor's report, just because maybe those bills are due and you don't know how you're going to pay them, just because you don't know how you're going to make it through this tough season in your marriage or in your relationships and there's tension there all of a sudden if God just didn't make you and your spouse wake up the next day and you've fallen in love all over again and you're like oh well just will you forgive me no you forgive me I, I forgive you of course oh you're so beautiful you're so handsome you're so wonderful it'd be wonderful if we all just woke up the next day like that after having a big fight but that's not always how it goes is it so is God good because he didn't sprinkle magic fairy dust on my spouse in the middle of the night and wake up and just want to, you know, forgive and heal? No, God still gets to be good, right? But how many times has God taken those tough seasons in your marriage or taken those tough seasons that you thought were going to knock you out, that you saw no way out, and he used them in a way that actually benefited you, helped you to deepen your trust in him, and it didn't happen when you wanted, it definitely didn't happen how you wanted it, but God did it in a way that brought you good and ultimately him glory. That means he's worthy of our trust. Amen, church? And if he never intervened in our lives, in our day-to-day -day lives here on earth, he would still be good because he forgave us and made a pathway for us to be reconciled and to be in right standing or righteous because of what Christ has done, not because of what you and I have done, but rather in spite of what you and I have done. That's the good news of the gospel. Amen? It's that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, that's the gospel. That's, that's the really good news. And then he cares about our temporary life here. That blows my mind. Blows my mind. And he wants us to live in light of eternity. I, I think about this often, and it messes with my head. And I hope after I share this, it messes with your head too. Because let's just spread that around, okay? Um, I think about weird stuff because that's how my mind works. You remember the story in Scripture, those of you who have been a Christian for a while and read your Bible, you, you remember the story of Lazarus? 
Lazarus was Jesus' friend. And he obviously had a close relationship with Lazarus because when Lazarus died, Jesus cried about it. Like, it, Jesus was emotionally moved by the death of Lazarus. And then Jesus does something miraculous. You remember what he did? He raises Lazarus from the dead. I mean, after the time he had been dead so long, people were concerned about him stinking. That was the primary concern. Lord, he stinketh, is what the King James says, you know. And Jesus calls him out of the grave and calls him back to life. What a weird thing to have happen. And then Lazarus goes on, I guess, to live a pretty great life. But as far as I know, unless you know different and you maybe have seen him walking around, Lazarus died again. You ever thought about that before? Lazarus died, and then he died again. So, like, what's that like? I don't know what happens after you die immediately. Like, is there, like, a waiting room? You take a ticket? Are you, like, right there? Like, are you at the pearly gates? Who, you know, like, I don't, I don't know. Some people who've had near-death experiences talk about seeing a light. Scripture doesn't say exactly what all the details are and what everything looks like when you die. So, I don't know. But whatever happened, Lazarus already had it happen once. And so like the second time, if there was a waiting room and there's people that just show up and they're like, whoa, what happened? Lazarus is like, I've been there before. I'll, I'll show you around. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. Like he's, he's been there before. What, whatever, whatever happens, you know, he's like, hey, good to see you again, guys. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know. Isn't that strange? So, so then that doesn't seem right because Lazarus died again. The Bible doesn't say what he really died of. But most people die, you know, like either some sort of accident or some sort of sickness or just old age. I, I don't know how he went the second time, but he died again. And that just seems strange to me because Jesus healed him and brought him back from the dead. So then Jesus' miracle of bringing Lazarus back from the dead was not so Lazarus could just enjoy life here on earth. Because isn't being with God better than being on the earth? Yeah. Right? So it's almost like there was a different purpose for it. That's right. The purpose of resurrecting Lazarus was to show those that Jesus had the power over death. That's why Lazarus was resurrected from the grave, so God could be glorified. Lazarus got a few more years out of the deal, right, here on earth. I don't know which one. I don't think that, I think it's actually better to be with God. <laughs> but at the same time, he experienced that life here on earth. So when God intervenes in our life and he does things, there's another greater purpose to it than just our comfort. And that's what I want us to understand. A lot of times we ask God to intervene in our lives in a way that will make our lives more comfortable. And sometimes God moves and does those things, and sometimes he doesn't. But we will often call God good or not good based on whether he makes my life more comfortable. Think about all of the sick people that Jesus healed. Do you think those people Jesus healed that were sick, do you think they never got sick again? Was that like the greatest HMO ever? Like, I... I <laughs> I mean, like, were they never sick again? No, they all probably got sick again at some point, and they died. All those people Jesus healed died. Isn't that wild? You think about it that way? So what does that mean? Jesus healed them. Their life was a little bit more comfortable. Here, the point was showing that he has power over sickness. He has power over death, and he is the one who is going to provide salvation for mankind, that he's going to make the way that you and I could not make, that he's going to open the door we could never open in our own strength so that we could trust in him and know that he truly is God in the flesh manifested for us to see and to trust and to be able to put our faith and our hope in him alone. 
And as we see that, that that's, that's awesome. But we get mixed up in our lives when things don't go the way we want them to go because we begin to question whether or not God is good. Folks, can I tell you, God gets to be good on his own terms and his goodness spans beyond this temporal earthly existence. He sees the end from the beginning and God is not surprised. God is not taken off guard. God is not shocked. God does not get nervous. And some of us need to hear this because as we recognize our position to regularly humble ourselves, to acknowledge and deepen our need, God gives us this tool, this vehicle of communication and communion with him that we call prayer to be able to deepen that trust, to deepen that dependence, to deepen that confidence in him because it's not about my life being more comfortable, although God may answer those types of prayer requests and we should pray, we should knock, we should ask, but the greatest thing that we could ever have happen is to have our eternity transformed, our eternal destination transformed by putting our faith and our hope in Jesus Christ, amen? And we get this idea that God wants us to do all of these things in our own strength for him, and it's actually quite the opposite. It's actually our humbling of ourselves and our weaknesses that God's power is manifest, not us showing God how strong we are, not us proving to God how we've got this. No, it's actually in us acknowledging, God, I don't got this, and I need you, and I'm humbling myself before you by petitioning you, by acknowledging you are that great Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, and I want your kingdom come and your will to be done on earth and in my life, in our church family, as it is in heaven. I want to read this uh, story of Jesus healing someone over in Mark chapter 3. If you have your Bible, go flip over there with me if you want to read it, follow along. Mark chapter 3. This is one of my favorite stories of miracles that Jesus does um, for many reasons, but it's really powerful what Jesus asks this man to do. Mark chapter 3, verse 1 says this, And again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus, they being the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal this man with a withered hand on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him, right? And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their hearts. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how they would destroy him. As we read this story, I could just imagine this guy being in this situation. I've known people in my life who have either lost a limb or maybe they didn't have a hand. I had a friend that was actually a truck driver that only had uh, one hand, and uh, he had a hook on the other side, and he could actually drive a, a big rig. And I mean, it's just incredible. But when you would meet him and you would say hi to him, he'd always extend the hand that was whole and shake your hand, right? He wouldn't extend that place where he had lost a limb. I also was in a band with a guy when I was younger who was our drummer who actually had a withered hand. His hand was, was just all balled up like this. And he could concentrate on that hand. It'd take him about 30 minutes of concentration and he could open his hand up but then the moment he stopped concentrating on it, it would fold right back 
into that clawed position. And it was due to some nerve damage that he had had earlier in his life. And how did he play drums? He would take the drumstick and poke it in his hand and wrap his hand with tape. And that's how he would play drums in our band. And it, he was the best drummer I've ever played with, ever. And I remember how this drummer would just focus on that. And he would show me, like, you know, he'd say, watch this. And he would try to open that hand up and it would slowly, slowly do that. And I began to think about this story of the man with the withered hand that Jesus did something so un-PC culture. He asked the guy to stand up and to expose his weakness to everyone. And you're like, Jesus, that's not very PC. That's like not very nice. No, we're, 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 we, we don't we're not going to deal with that, Jesus. And Jesus is like, hey, stand up and stretch out your hand. And he didn't tell the man which hand to stretch out. Isn't that interesting? He gave the guy almost a choice in the matter, it seems like, because he didn't say, stand up and stretch out your withered hand. He said, stand up and stretch out your hand. And I know how people, my friends, who have those different issues, they don't want those issues to necessarily be on full display and highlighted to a crowd of people. Because if you were to meet them and shake their hand, they would extend their hand of strength. And the man could have said, well, here's, here's my hand. Because I could imagine he walked around with the withered hand in his cloak and hidden from the public because he didn't want to be shamed or rejected somehow. And I could imagine how perhaps he had lived most of his life that way. And he's dealing with most people with the hand that looks the same as those who are completely healthy. And Jesus says, stand up and stretch out your hand. And the guy knew what Jesus was asking him to do. So he stands up in the middle of the crowd and he stretches out that withered hand. It's Jesus' way of saying, I'm not interested in your strength. I'm not interested in what looks like everyone else's. I'm interested in this thing that you normally don't show everyone. This thing that you're ashamed of, this thing that you feel is a weakness, this thing that you feel makes you different. And I'm actually wanting my power to be manifested through that thing because that brings God glory. Amen? And he's saying, stretch forth your, your weakness, stretch forth and acknowledge your need. And how many of us are willing to do that? I, I begin to think about my drummer buddy and how long it would take him to open up his hand. And in his own strength, he had to try really, really hard. And the moment he stopped trying really, really hard, his hand would just collapse back into that weak state. And I begin to think about how Christians do the same thing. We try really, really hard to do it on our own. And it takes a lot of focus. And it takes a lot of effort and a lot of energy. And then something happens and we go, oh, squirrel. And oh. <laughs> and next thing you know, we're, we're right back. We feel like to where we started. It's because we haven't given that weakness over to Jesus. We're trying to do it in our own strength. And it takes a lot of effort on our part. And Jesus is saying, will you just give this to me? Jesus is saying, will you just depend on me? And so for me to depend on him, I've got to remember he's big. He's the good father who gives the good gifts. He's the one who intervenes. He's the one who makes all things right. And Lord, I need you and I need to depend on you. And that's what prayer does. It positions my heart to remember my greatest need and to put my need and regularly confess my need in him by saying, Lord, I depend on you. You're holy. You're big. Because prayer reminds us that God is good. 
It reminds us that he gets to be good on his own terms. It reminds us that he is the perfect father and that he gets to define what truly is good. So when I'm saying, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done, I'm saying, Lord, teach me what good really is because my view of good is selfish. My, my view of good is self-serving. My view of good is me getting my life customed my way right away. And if I keep chasing the American dream of my own personal happiness and I'm putting that based on the wealth that I can acquire, the status I can obtain in social circles, how popular I become, how well-liked I am, how impressive my life appears to other people, how accomplished I can become, how fit I can become, how healthy of a life I can live, how moral I can be. If I put all of my trust in those things, it's me trying to open the hand on my own. And I'm trusting in myself. Instead, I need to say, no, Lord, your will be done. Lord, I'm trusting and I'm humbling myself because I trust that you're good. Go over to 1 John chapter 5. Is this helping anybody? If it's not, don't say no because that'd be weird. Um, <laughs> First John <laughs> chapter 5, page 1023 in my Bible. I did that one time in a sermon and someone said, oh, me too. And if we have the same Bible and it is page 1023, neat. So 1 John chapter 5. The spiritual content of my sermon just kind of ebbs and flows like this, just kind of just goes in waves. All right, so First John chapter 5, verse 1, John writes this. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love and obey his commandments. Isn't that interesting? Because he says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Mm. So that means that if I'm loving God and I'm loving others, that his commandments are not burdensome. They're a joy. I get to do this is how I look at serving God and connecting and loving the family of God. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is truth. For there, is, there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. And whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. It's so important that we look at the whole context of those last two scriptures, because sometimes people like to just pull those out and talk about, if we ask anything, that he'll just do it for us. Yeah, but he qualifies those statements before he says that. 
He says, you got to love God. And then you got to love others who are in the family of God. you got to be bearing fruit. There has to be something in your life that's evidence that you love God. And if you love God, you're going to obey his commandments. And you're going to walk in this truth and put your faith and your trust in Christ. And all these things are going to be unified and be a testimony that you truly are a follower of Christ. And he said, if that's the case, then you're going to love God and you're going to want what God wants. And so when you ask in accordance to his will, you can be confident that he's going to hear you. So that means that if you are a Christ follower, if you are someone who's put your faith, your hope, and your trust in Jesus, and you're bearing the fruit and the evidence of that, that you can be confident that when you pray, you can know God has heard your prayer. Isn't that awesome? Sometimes we think that God's just like too busy or that he's not hearing or that he's not good. No, he hears. And you can be confident that he hears. And then you can also be confident that you ask anything according to his will that he's going to do this for you. And I know you can. Just like knocking on that friend's door, I know you've got what I need and I know who you are and I know you can provide. Like we sang earlier, I know you're Jehovah Jireh. I know you're the God who provides, and so it's my confidence in you. And the more I grow to know him and the more my life begins to bear fruit of knowing him, the more confidence I should have in asking and in knowing the God that I serve. Amen? Amen. We all need to have confidence in our prayer life, and confidence in God will drive a consistent prayer life. You want to be consistent in your prayer life? Develop a deeper confidence in God. You need to know who he is. Bear fruit of that love of God that's been shed abroad in your heart that's infectious that begins to change the way you treat other people, especially those in the family of God. As we love God and as we love others and as we are concerned for those outside of the family of faith, sharing the gospel, evangelizing the truth of what Jesus Christ has done, we can see that our hearts are going to be changed. They're going to be tempered. And I'm going to know better how to ask. My kids know how to ask things of me. It's because they know me. They have confidence in me that when they ask me something, they know what I will do and they know what I won't do. They know what my value system is and they know what like might be borderline like maybe. But they do have confidence in certain things that if they ask me, they know without a doubt I will do those things for them. They know me. They know I love them. They know I'm, I give them good gifts. They know I have the best in mind for them. And so when I am asked of my children something, they can confidently ask because they have that relationship. If you want to have confidence in your prayer life, you need to continue to grow in knowing who God is. You need to know the scriptures so you can pray in according to his will, his revealed word as it, as it has been shown to us in the scriptures so we can see who God is, what his value system is, how he operates. That should fuel a consistent prayer life. And also someone who is walking with God, bearing fruit, not just someone who's reading the Bible, but someone who's living those words that they're reading. Amen? Amen. This should fuel and drive a consistent prayer life because I've got confidence in the one that I'm asking. We've been talking about saying yes as a church to greater things. And prayer is something that we are commanded to do in Scripture. And when we pray, we're acknowledging that we need God. And we're saying, God, I don't got this. And I know that you're good. And I know your ways are higher than my ways. Your thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And I'm going to be content 
where I'm at in this season. And if it's a season for me to grow in patience, then Lord, help me to do that. If it's a season for me to grow in greater degree of contentment, like we sang earlier, Jesus being enough, not Jesus plus things, actually Jesus plus nothing, being more than I need. If we really believe that and it's more than just words that we sing and things that we say, Lord, help me to grow in that. Let me know you in that kind of way. So whether life may be flowing the way I want it to or whether things in this world and in my life personally may not be going the way I would rather them go. Let me submit my thoughts. Let me submit my, my words, the things that are hidden, the hidden places. May those things be submitted to you. Because anyone can put on a good show for everybody, right? We can all say the right things in the right circumstances for a little while till we kind of reach that threshold of tolerance. <laughs> but I want to genuinely be that person, Lord, not just for show. I want to be that person when no one's watching but you. I want to be that person, Lord, of integrity who's serving you, who's, whose words and intentions of my heart match up. So, Lord, do in me what needs to be done. Help me to trust you. And if that takes us a tough season, if that takes me walking through that fire, if that takes me having to go through difficulty, Lord, I, I want to trust you in it because I know you're good. I know you're not going to leave me or forsake me. I know that it's not always going to be easy. Because whoever thought that becoming a Christian was going to just make your life easier and you're going to be walking on easy street the rest of life, uh, they were sorely mistaken. Jesus said that the world's going to hate you and it's going to be my fault. <laughs> Jesus just straight up let us know that. And he said the world's not, not going to be too keen on you, but still love them anyways. Because <laughs> I died for them. He set the tone. And make sure you love each other well. Make sure you serve each other well. That's kind of the evidence that the world's going to be looking at to see that you're actually following me and you're actually understanding what I taught and what I did on the cross for you because I redeemed you and I, I bought you back when you, when you didn't do anything to deserve it. And so, yeah, give kindness, give love, give mercy to those that don't deserve it because you didn't deserve it either. That humbles me. That humbles me. The gospel humbles me. And it causes me to want to pray. And the more I pray, the more I'm declaring my need. The more I'm declaring my dependence. Oh, Father in heaven, holy is your name. Hallowed. How, how amazing is your name. Lord, may your kingdom come and your will be done in my life. I bet North Christian Church, in my family, in my home, in my friendships, as it is in heaven. Lord, give me this day my daily bread because you're my provider. So the, sus the sustenance that I need to survive comes from you and I acknowledge it's from you. And Lord, I know you're gonna provide. Lord, and help me to forgive those that I need to forgive because I realize you've forgiven me much. And so if there's anything I need to do, Lord, I, I, I repent and I wanna make that right. You see the beauty of this prayer life that you and I are called to have. And Jesus said that the Father's house was to be a house of prayer. Amen? And I know the scripture says that, don't you know you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? That that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you? And so if you are a Christian, yeah, we should be temples of prayer. But I also believe that our church family and this place that we gather that we call church should be a place of prayer as well, amen? And so I want us to focus on a few things to begin to increase 
the temperature and the regularity of prayer and the importance and the priority of prayer in our congregation, in our church family. And our staff has been working on this for a couple of months. And I want to let you know of some great things that I want to invite you to be a part of to collectively increase prayer at Bendorf Christian Church. And I hope that you will participate as you can. And I also hope that um, you will take this type of message and practice it in your lives and in your families as well to prioritize prayer. The first thing is we have a ministry here called Prayer Warriors. I don't know if you're aware of this or not. Maybe if you're newer to the church, you're not quite aware of that. But did you know that every single week that there's someone in a small prayer room that is actually praying for you this entire time? Did you know that we have people who are that dedicated and who believe in prayer and believe that God is doing something special in our times of gathered worship where we assemble? For those of you watching online, do, do you know there's someone every single week that's praying for you? Maybe God wants you to be a part of that team. I, I love, I've looked over the manual that they've created over the many years that this has been going on, and they just keep adding things to it that help people to know how to pray. So if you're wanting to grow and know how to pray to, to help you to sharpen that gift and that desire to commune with God in that way, I love that we have some wonderful resources compiled. And I think that that's a fantastic thing that we have going on here at Bettendorf Christian Church. Something new that I want us to begin doing that is going to actually be rolled out on August the 8th in conjunction with the message that week, because we're about to jump into James next week, and we're going to go verse by verse through the book of James. I'm excited to teach that here at our church. But the very last um, chapter in the book of James talks about the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. So we're going to have offered every week after beginning with August 8th, we're going to have people who will be available at the end of the service to be able to actually pray with you. And we're going to have several couples all throughout the church who are actually going to be available here in this room. So when the service dismisses, that you can still have someone just to be there to pray for you. We, we're going to offer that also occasionally during our praise and worship time as well as needed just to be able to be a touch point of ministry and prayer and agreement. Because we want you to know we, we believe when we pray God hears us. Amen, church? So we're working on that, we're building that team and we're training those people so that way when we launch it, we can launch that well. And you can always reach out to us as a staff for prayer because we, we love to pray for you. Our staff prays every single time we get those requests in, we go through all those different prayer requests and we do lift those up before the Lord. I know sometimes you wonder when you email us at prayer at bettendorfchristian.org, like what happens? We read them and we actually do pray. So I want you to be confident that your pastors and your church staff that we do care we are praying and if follow-ups needed we'll take the appropriate steps but the most recent thing that we're going to add to our church's prayer arsenal is going to be something that i'm very excited about that we're going to launch on july 8th so that's in just a few days beginning with july 8th every single thursday morning and i know that doesn't work for everyone but beginning every july 8th every thursday morning at 8 30 we're going to have a time of prayer here in the sanctuary, and we're also going to stream our prayer time online. So you can join us on Facebook Live and actually submit prayer requests in real time where we can pray for you, and there will be people and, and, and who are joining online specifically to pray for you as well and to interact with you. 
So if you can make it in person, you certainly can join us here in the building every Thursday at 8.30, or you can jump online on Facebook and we'll stream that every single week. And then if there's prayer requests that come in after that time has ended, we'll pick those up throughout the week and we'll still make sure that we pray for you as well. We're just trying to do some things to bring prayer to the forefront here at Bettendorf Christian Church because we want to collectively, as a church, deepen our dependence on God. Amen? And so I want you to be excited about those things. I want you to participate in those things as you're able. And I want us to be a church that prays, a church that prioritizes prayer. We have cards out there that you can fill out. We have things that you can engage with us on prayer. We're going to talk about it more. We're going to be engaging that prayer muscle more. And I'm very excited for our future because I think it's going to be key for our church moving forward for us to be a church that focuses on prayer. Amen? Amen. So we're going to do that, and I want you to join us in doing that, and I hope this sermon has helped to stir that up in you if maybe you needed that reminder today. Before we leave, let's receive communion together. I want us to receive the Lord's Supper as we are able to take these elements and receive them, and I want us to do something before we go through this time of remembering what Christ has done for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth and he was getting on to them because they had misappropriated the purpose of the Lord's Supper. And he told them when they gathered and did this that they needed to examine themselves. And he said, the reason you need to examine yourselves is because you guys are missing the point, basically. And the gist of what was happening is that you had these people who thought they were more spiritual because of how often and how much they had taken communion and they were people of wealth, people of notoriety and they thought, well, look at me, look at how often, look at how, how much I'm receiving. He said, you guys are taking the Lord's Supper. He said, and some of you are sick because of it actually. He said, and a few of you have died. Whoa. He said, so here's what you need to do. Instead of just taking it to show off, instead of taking it so everyone can go, oh, well, I did communion that week. He said, I want you to examine yourself. So let's return to that. Let's examine ourselves. Because I know we receive communion here every week at Bettendorf Christian Church. I love that we do that. I think that's a great practice. But at the same time, sometimes when you do something every week, you can disengage. And I don't want us to ever disengage from something Jesus told us to do in remembrance of what he did. Amen? So let's humble ourselves and declare our need for Jesus by examining our hearts. And then we'll pray and receive communion together. your your body that was beaten that was bruised so that we could be free that pain that you endured was ours to endure it represented the wrath of God it should have been poured out on us but instead you took it as the propitiation for our sins so thank you Jesus for doing what we could never have done because you were the perfect spotless lamb of God who took away the sins and we thank you, Lord, for doing that for us. We honor you and we glorify you and we remember you today by receiving communion together in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Would you receive the bread? Jesus, we thank you for this cup that represents your blood, that reminds us, as the old song says, or washed as white as snow. So we thank you for your blood that has cleansed us, that has still spoken mercy throughout the generations and throughout eternity, that we might be called sons and daughters of God by faith, by putting our hope in what you have done, Jesus, and the power that is in your blood. We thank you, Lord, for that as we remember you today. In Jesus' name, amen. We receive this together. So, Lord, thank you for stirring in us a deeper understanding of our need for you and our dependence upon you. It's in Jesus' name we thank you.